this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Greetings from Papiete Marina in Tahiti. I'm Linus Wilson, the Slow Boat crew of Jana, Sophie, me, and Daly, the toy poodle, are here in Papiete, Tahiti, after a brief stop in Morea. And I think when I left you last time, I was talking to you about the cruise of the Marquesas, and I'll pick up with that cruise. But first, a word from our sponsor. Why don't you tell me about how you came up with the swivel? So people... They like to use them, and we would notice and explain to them a lot of the weaknesses that exist, that, you know, with the swivels that were on the market, and kind of make sure that they understood those cautions and saying, yeah, swivels have a function, but you're weighing that, you know, what you're gaining versus the risks that you're taking. On the other hand, so you have to consider every situation on whether you really want to be utilizing the swivel or not. And I think. That, and we just saw kind of like there's a need in the marketplace for something that was a better design and something more reliable. We use the innovative heavy-duty Mantis Swivel on our boat. You can get the Mantis Swivel, their anchors, or any of their other innovative products by clicking the link in the show notes or going to mantis.com or many other fine marine retailers. Our guest for this episode is Sailing Zatara, and unfortunately, we just missed Sailing Zatara and their crew and the boat Zatara by a few days in a couple ports. I think we missed them by a few days in Papiete, Tahiti, and a few days in Fakarava. I think they did pass by the slow boat while I was not there, uh, but we kind of caught up with them, and we didn't catch up enough. So I'm sad that I did not get to meet the crew in person, unlike I did get to meet the crew of Cheeky Monkey and our episode 29 guest, Ryan Horsenail, of the Chase the Story YouTube channel and Turf to Surf blog. I did get to meet him in Papiete and we're actually moored right next to him here in Papiete Marina. After I talk more about our Marquesas cruise, you'll get to hear the really inspirational story of sailing Zatara. You know, I think a lot of people think you have to put in years of work before you can go off and sail around the world. And the crew of sailing Zatara show you, you know, you could just buy a boat on a whim and start going. They left Fort Lauderdale in November 2016. And now in July 2017, they are cruising the Society Islands. When I caught up with them, they were in St. Martin. But Keith, the skipper of Zatara, is a determined guy, and he sails his boat fast. He cruises fast, and they are on their way, headed west to points beyond French Polynesia as we speak. You'll also want to stay tuned for the Sailing Zatara interview so you can learn about homeschooling and sailing with kids. First let's hear about the cruise that me and Daly did, the dog and me, 
did in the Marquesas before we got, we were blessed with so many wonderful crew members. All right, so we last left you guys in Fatuhiva, and for the bonus episode, I told about sailing back from Fatuhiva to Hiva Oa and back to Atuona again, and then to the neighboring isle to Hiva Oa, which is Tahawata, where I anchored for just one night. From Tahawata, I uh, sailed back to Hiva Oa to the north coast. So the main port is on the south coast. Tahawata is south of Hiva Oa. So I stayed in an anchorage in Tahawata. Then I did a day sail to Hanamenu. And in Hanamenu, I anchored in a bay and another boat, something like a Hans 40 called Silver Lining also anchored in that bay and because the Silver Lining boat crew were putting out their dinghy I called them up and asked them if there was anything worth putting out my dinghy because I was kind of debating whether I should deploy my dinghy and then hoist it for the next day just to go ashore and they offered to give me a ride ashore I'm glad they did number one I wasn't crazy about what was ashore in Hanamenu. There, there are a few things. There's a, there's a trail in Hanamenu, and that trail goes all the way back to Atuona. And me and my South Pacific Crossing crew member were on part of that trail coming from Hiva Oa and then going up into the mountains to try to climb one of the nearby mountains. Uh, but we didn't go all the way on that trail. And then, uh, but the other end of the trail leads to the north end of Hivao, where there aren't any roads, but the, just this trail. But there are some houses in the bay. They were more, mostly deserted. I didn't really see any people. I saw maybe chickens or dogs around, but I didn't see any people. And there's a little spring that I think was kind of made man-made, but it's got fresh water in it, and you can... You can swim in that, and that's just really nice way to cool off. But besides that, there wasn't really anything there. No people were there at the time. It's just kind of people's second homes. And I found it a little bit buggy in terms of the, the no-nos and the mosquitoes. And so I, you know, I wasn't crazy about staying long, but I always pack in my dry bag, you know, sunblock and off bug spray, deep bug spray, uh, because I don't like to get bug bites. So I was okay. So the next day I wanted to get up really early because I had like a 55 mile sail to Wahuka. And so our episode four guest, Nadine Slavinsky, author of Pacific Crossing Notes, who talked about the Marquesas, said this was the one island she didn't want to visit because the anchorages are so bad. You know, I was like, well, I got the time, so I'm going to try it. It's also on the way to Nukahiva. So if I don't try it from Hanamenu, then it'll be upwind. So you, you really, if you want to go to Wahuka, the best way to do it is to check in at Hiva Oa. And then you go, when you start going downwind from Hiva Oa, you you go to Wahuka first and then you leave Nukahiva next and then uh, Wapu last or you could possibly 
go from Wahuka to Wapu to Nukahiva. The good thing about Wapu and Nukahiva is that they are more or less a beam reach from one another. So you can conceivably go between those and the ordering of those two islands don't matter. But it really matters the ordering uh, going to uh, Wahuka because it's really like 20 or so miles upwind from Nukahiva. So if you check into Nukahiva, which is the second port of entry and the biggest island and really the biggest kind of cruiser community you're going to find in the Marquesas is going to be in the main bay in Nukahiva. If you go to Nukahiva first and don't stop at Wahuka, then you probably will never stop at Wahuka. So I wanted to give it a try. There were three bays. There's one bay on the western end, which is not very well protected. It's kind of southwest. And then there's a south face, two south-facing bays. One's called Invisible Bay in the English or it's named after the village, which I don't want to pronounce at the moment because it's so hard. My my uh, French Polynesian pronunciation is so bad. Uh, and then Hanny Bay, which is pretty easy to pronounce, and that is south-facing. So from west to east, it's uh, there's the one on the, the west coast, then there's the Invisible Bay, and then Hanny Bay is probably the easternmost. So I thought the Invisible Bay seemed like it would have the best protection because it was a narrow bay and it, it was kind of deep. But, you know, when I got there, I found it was really narrow, really narrow. And the best spot to drop an anchor was taken up by a mooring ball. The other problem was that there were two big cruising boats already anchored there. So there was definitely no room for me to drop the hook there. I wasn't even going to try. I went straight out of that and my backup option was to go to Hanny Bay, which was three miles upwind, but you're kind of protected on the coast there and it's not that far. It might even be two miles, you know. I was just kind of avoiding the rocks that are uh, obvious offshore like the huge rocks and that may have put on a half mile but it's not that far away to go check out Hanny Bay. Hanny Bay is wide open it could hold 20 cruising boats easily and none of them were in it. Its steps are great. The only problem is it is south facing like all the other bays in Wahuka and also like for instance the port of entry in Atuona it is south facing and that is not an ideal location you probably want something on the west side of the island or the northwest side of the island that would be the ideal with the east southeast trade winds and the, the swells coming more east southeast would be the most likely location from the swell and the wind but it was okay you know i'd been in rollier bays i'd also been in bays that had worse beach landings so by this time I was pretty expert in beach landings with the Walker Bay rowing dinghy. I never got out the rib or the outboard while I was in the Marquesas. Part of that was for convenience. The other thing is that I did not want to have my outboard swamped. I also did not want to have my rib with its inflatable sides to be scratched up by the concrete 
docks that they have throughout the Marquesas and are pretty much standard in French Polynesia as far as I can see. So you won't find a ton of places to land your dinghy that are not a beach or a uh, concrete dock in French Polynesia. And both those things kind of lean me towards the Walker Bay rowing dinghy, which A, if you're landing on a beach, very hard to get a outboard off a beach and not get it wet. If you get the, the boat swamped, then you get the outboard swamped, and then you have a big problem with your outboard. Big problems. It's also, you know, the outboard sticks down, so that makes beach landings more difficult with an outboard. I'm not saying it can't be done. It depends on the swell. You know, the more swell there is, the more breakers there are, uh, the more difficult it is. You know, I would say if you've got a one-foot breaker, then it's probably dicey going, getting off that beach unless you're wading out past the breaker. Two-foot breaker is going to be really dicey. Three-foot breaker, you're, you're probably going to have a swamped uh, boat. You know, my method uh, that I got from hard-won experience from swamping my digging in Tahawada was that you need to really go beyond the breaker, wade out beyond the breaker, and then get on the stern of the boat, at least in my boat, that works the best if you jump into the stern and then push the boat further away from the shore and then you row like the Dickens and uh, hopefully you don't get sucked back onto the beach and into the breaker. So Handy is a town, and then there's a town like right around the hill. So it's maybe 15, 20 minute walk to the town right around the hill. Town right around the hill is really worth walking to, probably more interesting than Handy. So I think if you're facing the beach, you go left and you go to the airport in Wahuka, which is a walkable distance and I was encouraging Anna to actually fly into Wahuka because then I wouldn't even have to rent a car or get a cab I think we could have just walked back to the boat but she decided to fly into Nukahiva and then if you go right is the other town and the other town has at least one store magazine and that magazine has a lot of stuff that is useful, including fresh bread, which is always on the cruiser's radar. A place that stocks fresh bread past 7 a.m. is always popular uh, with the boat. So I think they subsidize the bread here in French Polynesia. It costs like 60 cents for a full piece of French bread or baguette, as you might say. And uh, I can't imagine that being the cost of actually producing those things but they tend to sell out uh, as a result so if I had you know a day or two more I would have walked to the town where the invisible bay was which I think was about six or seven miles that would have been an awesome hike past the airport at least and you know Oahuka is is not as high as a lot of the other Marquesas but there's still the roads in the Marquesas are just amazing that they you know they never seem to use dynamite they just kind of wind up the roads and up into the hills so hiking the roads is amazing and there's almost no cars on the roads so it's it's just a really great place to hike just the road and that in itself is an adventure 
But I didn't get to do that because Anna was coming, and so I ended up going to New Kahiva maybe a day earlier. But it was also getting kind of swelly in the Haney Bay, and so it was a little bit of an uncomfortable anchorage the last night. Uh, so I'm not so sad that I left a little early, but I was so happy that I got to land there and uh, visit Wahuka. And I think it's definitely a place that is worth visiting. It's not one of the places that you should skip. You know, I guess it depends on the Pacific cruisers, how many places they're stopping, you know, whether what they like. You know, my preferences are more towards hiking, uh, which makes me like the Marquesas. And I probably... I don't do any diving and I do a limited amount of snorkeling and so that probably makes me weird compared to a lot of other cruisers who tend to prefer to spend more time in the Tuamotus than the Marquesas. But I did visit one of the Tuamotus and we'll talk about that in a future episode as will we talk about the arrival of Anna in New Kahiva and our travels in New Kahiva and Wapu in a future episode. Perhaps part of that will show up in the bonus episode uh, to this episode for patrons only. As a patron of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast, you get access to my audiobook version of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, a $9.99 value for just pledging $1.00. You, if you pledge at the $3 level, you can get my audiobook of Slow Boat to Cuba. You can also be in a drawing to become a crew member for our 2018 South Pacific season, which will go through the Society Islands of French Polynesia, probably stop in the Cooks, and stop in Tonga. So there's a lot of great sailing in that, and it'd be awesome to have a patron aboard next summer. Just like with this talk, you may hear Sophie end the talk with Keith from Sailing Zatara. Hey Keith, I was impressed by the fact you guys are originally from Texas, is that right? That's correct. And you're sailing with your family and I think it said a family of six. Is that right? That is correct. We have six of us on board, me and my wife and four of our children. Our oldest is still in Texas. She's 20, 21 years old doing her thing. Okay. What are the names of your children? Tate's my oldest back in Texas. And then the ones on the boat with us is Anna, who's 15. Jack is 14. And Finn is 10. And Kate is 9. Oh, okay. And your name is Keith, and your wife's name is? Renee. Renee. My daughter's six. There you go. I saw your trailer, and it said you guys bought the boat in Fort Lauderdale. So were you looking online for a long time for that boat? We were. We, You know, we, we looked. You know, I, I, I never bought it. This is my first sailboat. Never owned a sailboat in my life. and Never sailed before in my life. And... I had some ski boats, you know, nautiques, fish, you know, water ski, wakeboarding boats. And, and uh, we wanted to, we figured out we wanted to go sailing and go around the world, try to go around the world. I mean, a lot of people say that. And we've realized a lot of people don't quite make it. <laughs> and 
so we just started looking for boats and you know obviously i watched that uh, i started watching that sailing la vagabond with riley and elena and they were in a beneteau and so i just started looking at beneteaus and there's no reason to rhyme for that that's just what i started looking at and and uh, then i watched delos and of course they're in a mail when you've never owned something you, you don't know what a blue water boat is you don't know anything about anything we just kind of had to step in and buy something and get going and, and buy what we thought would work for us yeah, I think that's that's important. You know, you do, you just kind of got to do it, <laughs> and then you learn, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not gonna know, you're not gonna know what you need for somebody like us. And this boat is just fine; it'll work. But if I had all the money in the world, there's a different kind of sailboat and a different way I'd have it outfitted. Yeah, you know, I think that was our experience when we bought our first boat. That we just we realized that what we liked in a boat was very different than what we thought we liked in a boat. But that exactly. being said, you know, I think you get a lot of boat for the money with a Beneteau. And, you know, it looks like you guys have a pretty new Beneteau. And so if you ever decided to sell it, I think you'd have a pretty big market and you'd do okay. Oh, and, and there's, a, you know, let's talk to a guy the other day. It's, it's a floating compromise. Uh, we have a big family on board and two teenagers that need their own space. And, you know, getting a, a true blue water boat to, to house the space that we need for our kids, you'd have to have a 65, 70-foot boat to, to, to have the space that we need for those. And the Beneteau provides that, that that space, although giving up some other blue water qualities that we'd like. But at the same time, it's, a, it's just a trade-off. Well, you know, I, I think a lot of people have gone a long ways in Beneteaus, so I wouldn't say that you can't take them around the world or anything like that. So right. it, it looks like yours is a pretty nice one. It, it also looks like that you probably did pretty well and that it was pretty ready to go. Oh, well, we, we had the solar panels, wind generator. We had to do all of the, the outfitting and scuba. And, I mean, it was just a plain stock boat when we got it. Okay. Well, it, it did have good electronics at least. That's right. It had all the Simrad stuff on it, B&G and Simrad. And those have been really nice. It had... Plotter, autopilot, did it have AIS? It had AIS, the water maker, what else did it have on it? That, that's what it had. It did have radar. Radar, it had radar, that's right. Yeah, see, that's all stuff that takes time and a lot of money to install, so that, that makes your job outfitting a lot easier. Did it have a generator? It did, it's got a little, that's, that's probably, you know, that's probably one of the weaker spots in the system. It's got a really small generator, so you can't run very many systems with it. Probably all boats are like that, but... Oh, I don't know. I guess it depends on, like, uh, how big is your generator? It's just an 8KW generator, and it's it's really, really... I mean, it's a pan, uh, Fisher Panda, and it's really small. I mean, it works. It works good, and it's quiet, but it's just it's just really small. Oh, well, I, to me, 8,000 sounds huge. <laughs> if we have a generator, we run off the Honda 2000, so. Well, that's nice. <laughs> so, 8K, that's a lot of energy. I one of those to back, to back this thing up. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, those are nice to have. It sounds, sounds like you have a pretty comfortable boat to live in. Uh, although he got a lot of people. He lives in a boat. Yeah, he does. We live in a boat. Very easy boat to sell too. It's an easy boat to handle. Yeah, I think we trained on Benetos, and we really liked. We were, you know, when we were looking for our first boat, if we could have found a real big deal on a used Beneteau, we would have bought one. 
uh, but we didn't. We ended up buying a yeah. really old boat. How long was it after you bought the boat uh, that you uh, started sailing? I mean, you left for the Bahamas. Well, we bought the boat in June of 2016. We started looking for boats around May of 2016. We bought the boat in June, around June 1st of 2016, and then we uh, went down, lived on the boat in Florida. And on the New River there in Fort Lauderdale and outfitted it. And that took about two or three months to get everything done that we wanted to get done to it. By the time we got that done, our plan was to leave and go on out and start sailing, but hurricane season was right in the middle of hurricane season, and, and I had some business that I needed to clean up. So actually, we, we sold our house in Texas and our real estate stuff's there. And we moved all our stuff to our place in Montana, and that's where we live now full-time when we're not on the boat is Montana. And so... We went back to Montana until after hurricane season, which was about two and a half months. And then November 8th, we flew to Florida, got on the boat, and left. Okay, so you bought it in June, and then you were on the boat putting a few more things on for like a month? Is that it? Yeah, about two months. It took about two, two or three months. months. And we learned how to sail. We, we hired a captain, a couple of captains that taught us how to sail, and went through some ASA courses uh, to, to get the basics of sailing. Did a few little trips and overnighters with the captain so we could learn how to handle the boat, docking and all that kind of stuff. And then we, and that took about three months from June to about August. And then we went up to our place in Montana and then we came back November 8th. Okay. All right. Wow. So that's really quick. And you guys, you'd, you'd, before you bought the boat, you'd never went out sailing once. Well, what started that was... My wife, Renee, we, we home, we've homeschooled our kids ever since they were little, even before we, I mean, she's homeschooling for over a decade, and it's just what we do. Some of the things we do during the week is Renee organizes family trips or, you know, field days, and so she rented a, our house in Dallas is real close to a lake, and she rented a sailboat, we had a sailboat day where she rented a, uh, at their, there's a guy there that had a sailboat, and he'd take you out on a, on a freshwater lake and sail you around on this older boat. We got out there, and we was doing that, and I was, I always loved the ocean, always loved scuba diving, and, and I've deep sea fishing, done lots of that over the years, and, and we got on that boat, and it was always a dream of mine to go around the world on a sailboat, even though I'd never sailed. And we got on that boat, and I said, you know what, we could do this. And about, that was in early May. <laughs> That's right before we started looking for boats. And uh, we flipped the switch, and then we, we did it. Okay, great. I guess maybe the question I would ask is, like, uh, what in your career that you felt like, oh, I can drop everything and, and uh, quit my job and all that other things? Do you mind talking about that? No, I get, I get to the point. And over the last five or six years, I've been in business for myself and in the oil and gas industries and aviation industries. There's never a good time to leave. I've got some people, some business partners and stuff, different people that are kind of unhappy with me because of some of the choices I've made about what I'm going to do with my life. So there's never, never a good time to leave. But I was very, me and my family were very, very uninspired back in the States. You know, we, we were doing what everybody does, making money, paying the bills, living the life, the American dream. And, and I wasn't, I was, you know, I wouldn't say I was depressed, but I was just discouraged. I wasn't happy. I wasn't content. My wife wasn't content. Our kids were sucked into the technology and electronics and, and, and just, we didn't want to generate another cycle 
of life like we had been raised. And I said, we got to stop this. And, and we were looking to just move up to Montana full time and grow a garden and, and live simply up there when the sailing gig come up. And we decided the sailing would be better. The kids wanted to do the sailing thing. My wife wanted to do the sailing thing. And, you know, that's what we did. And now with us, we, we had a few more resources than a lot of people have because of some of the choices I've made earlier on in my life. But whether I had $10 million or I had $100,000 or I had $50,000, I'd have made the same choice. It's not really the, the best time to be in the oil and gas business right now. It's kind of a good time to take a break. I think... You're a big fan of La Vagabond, it sounds like. Yeah, and I liked him. Riley, Riley really inspired him. He's a, he, you know, he was an oil and gas guy. Right. And worked in the oil fields, and kind of a roughneck like what I grew up with. And, and watching his story, I liked his story where he, he bought that boat. And it really inspired me. I, I wish I'd have known that these options existed when I was 20 years old and 30 years old. And I want to show my children that they can do something like that when they're young, not when they're middle-aged or older. Yeah, I think there's also, you know, kind of certain times where there's just not a lot of money to be made. This yeah. might be one of those times in the oil and gas industry, if you're going to take a break, it's a good time to do it. It is, but it's, it's for, for us, it's deeper than, than making money, because yeah. one of the phrases we kind of coined was, there's nothing on the other side of money. True. And, you know, when you can... When you can go out and, and buy a steak or eat whatever you want to eat, anytime you want to eat it, nothing tastes good. That's the point we got to where just, and, and, and people will say, that's easy for you to say, Keith, because you've got a little money, you've done this, you've done that. And, and But the, the, the truth is still the truth. There, money is an empty, empty uh, pursuit. The wealth is an empty pursuit. For us, anyway. You know, most Americans, Canadians, Australians, they feel similar ways. Right, you know that they're yeah. they're pretty sated. They're pretty. Most people li li listening to this podcast are probably pretty rich by world standards, and you know they they look to sailing as a an adventure. Sometimes it's hardship, but that's part of what makes it interesting and exciting. Absolutely, you know, I you talk about that the hardships. Uh, you know, we we were sailing off the coast of Puerto Rico, coming down here, and we hit a lobster trap that wrapped up in my prop and it's three o'clock in the morning and and I'm, and the way you know we're in five ten foot seas out there bobbing up and down while i'm putting my scuba gear on underneath the boat cracking down on top of me cutting the rope off the prop and uh, it's a stressful situation but the whole time i'm doing that i'm thinking this is living this beats sitting at a desk this beats knowing what tomorrow brings let's talk about the the trip you had so you you left for the Bahamas. Where in the Bahamas did you go? Well, we took off from Fort Lauderdale, sailed across, cleared in in Bimini, uh, Gun Key, I think it was. We cleared in Gun Key, and, and then from Gun Key, we didn't stay. The whole goal is to get to the Pacific. That's something I've never seen and something I want to see. So basically going down through the Caribbean has been just kind of a starting ground to get our feet wet to get get everything where you know if we have problems we can get things fixed and we learned the boat we learned sailing so from gun key we went over to uh to uh chub key and then to nassau let the kids go uh, to uh all that resort there uh, atlantis yeah and then from there we went on down through the exumas which was really beautiful I, if i ever from what i've seen so far I, I could spend a lot of time in the exumas just diving and spear fishing and enjoying that place 
Do you do a lot of spear fishing? I, I do. I try. I try. What was the what's some of the good stuff that you caught? Well, most of the stuff I you know obviously we catch lobsters and stuff, but most of the stuff we catch I catch behind the boat on my hand lines. I, I dorados, wahoos, and tuna. Okay, uh, so <laughs> so we dragged the line most of the way across the Pacific, and we didn't get anything. So maybe I could use some more advice on how to catch some pelagic. I don't know. I, we've had good luck. Every time we go out, I, there's a fish on the end of the line, and and all our friends that we've met, we've made some really dear friends doing this, and they uh, they they haven't caught nothing, but we keep catching fish. <laughs> okay. You're not going to give away the secrets? No, it's just a green little squid-looking lure that I use. I call him Nemo. He's uh, a crowd pleaser. Everybody likes him. How <laughs> big a line do you use? What's that? How big of a line do you use? I just bought, you know, and I've never done this before, but I just bought a bunch of 400-pound monofilament there at Bass Pro Shops in Florida, uh -huh. and I put out about 100 yards behind the boat, and I tie a little figure eight loop in it, and I hook that to a bungee cord, and then the actual end of the line, I tie hard and fast to the safety rail, safety line, and I let that bungee cord fight the fish. And, you know, when I see it stretched out there, everybody says, oh, Dad, we got a fish, and then we start reeling it in. Uh, okay, so maybe I need to put out more line, have bigger line, and use a bungee cord. The bungee cord's going to keep, when that fish hits it, it's going to not let that fish put that hook out. Oh, Okay. The, uh, how do you attach the bungee cord? You, you just, it's, there's a knot take, on the bungee cord. Take your monofilament line, you know, out of, uh, it's a, it's a climbing knot. You take a, you make a figure eight knot. Uh-huh. You know how to do that? Yeah. Make a figure, take, take it, make a loop, and make a figure eight where it's got a loop on the end of it. And you hook one end of the bungee cord into that loop. Then the other line, you have, coming out of that figure eight knot, you have your line going out to your lure. And then on the other end of that line, the other end coming out, you have your probably about five foot of line to the end of your fin. Just tie that onto your rail. So if your bungee cord broke or the figure eight came off, you're still hard to fast to your lifeline. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll give that a try the next passage. Hopefully no passages this summer. Where are you guys at right now? Uh, we're in the Marquesas. The, the boat is in the Marquesas. I'm in Lafayette, Louisiana. I teach here go. at the university. We should be in the Marquesas around uh, April. All right. Well, that sounds good. We're going to have to say hello. Yeah. So you, you're you in St. Martin, so you plan to go all the way down to Granada or Trinidad from here? It was. It was. But we we, uh, well, we we changed that up. We had to haul the boat out here in St. Martin and have some fiberglass work done on the bow thruster. There was a... Uh, when Benito put that together, the, the insert that covers the bow thruster pod, it, it somehow didn't get foam inside of it from the factory, and so it was just flexing every time we sit in waves, and it just started, we pulled that out, and they fixed that, and then we went ahead and did a bottom tub while we are here. We lost about two weeks here in St. Martin, so next Wednesday, we're heading from here on down the sandblast and get going on the Pacific. So you want to go directly from St. Martin to the sandblast, is that right? Go to uh, Las Rocas, Venezuela. Las Rocas. Oh. Well, I heard a lot of people avoid Venezuela because they think there's a lot of kind of crime against boaters around. Or say Las Rocas still safe. It's easy. It's nice. No issues. You know, the other... This is my two cents, and uh, 
I don't think anybody follows it, but you know, the closer you are to the South American coast, the more you kind of get into that Colombian low. And so if, if you stay on the northern side of the Eastern Caribbean or the northern side of the Caribbean, then you can kind of avoid the low right? and the kind of gale conditions around it. Yeah. Uh, but if you, if you go south, like to the ABCs in Venezuela, then you get in, you pretty much can't avoid that low and you're going to have a tough passage. Well, that's what we, that's what we're seeing. And, and obviously we're going to have to pick our weather windows through there right when we leave Curacao. You know, I think if you go, maybe you go north of Jamaica, you might be okay. And then, then go to Grand Command and then switch down. Right. Then you can avoid it. But if you go south of it, very few people avoid it. Well, that's good information. So I have a little boat. It's an Island Packet 31. And we sail out of New Orleans. So I was really excited that there were some folks from the Gulf Coast, even though maybe you didn't sail out of the Gulf Coast. You still are from the same region. So that was nice. Right. Don't get a lot of... You went from the Exumas, so I guess you went down to Georgetown... Yep. And then where'd you go from Georgetown? From Georgetown, we cut straight across east to uh, Rum Key, yeah. which was some of the best diving I've ever done in the Caribbean. Man, that Rum Key is beautiful underwater. Yeah, I've never been to Rum Key. Is there not many people there? There's nobody there. And it is, it is the wall dives there, just unbelievable. And we were there right after Hurricane Matthew blew through there. And it still, is, is, as much as it roughed up the reefs and everything through there, Still, just spe- I mean, spectacular diving there. So it sounds like you guys had some diving experience before you bought the boat. Yeah, I've been diving for twenty something years, and my wife dives. And oldest kids, well, we all dive now. Everybody dives. Great. Yeah, you kind of need a little bit more room for the diving gear too. You do. We've got a dive compressor on board. You know, I think one of the things when I was just looking at your route is it just looked like you were just going straight into the trade winds the whole time. I think a lot of people don't think about that when they dream about going to the Caribbean. But it seems like you guys were always going against the wind. Is that the case? That is the case. You know, that's uh, they call that the Thorny Passage. And, and let me tell you something, they, that's named correctly. And even when you pick good weather windows, and you can read Bruce Van Zandt's book, A uh, uh, Gentleman's Guide to Passage of South. Right. You can you got to hit those weather windows right. You got to understand the weather, and you got to understand the winds and the sea states. And, and it's good learning ground. Yeah, it's just not it's not an easy it's not uh, easy sailing until you get to uh, the Eastern Caribbean, and then you have that beam reach up and down the. The islands, but which we haven't done yet, so we're excited. We're we're really excited to start beam reaching and downwind sailing because we haven't done it before. Yeah, the one thing I found was the downwind sailing is it's really something I never did prior to this last December. It's a it's a it's a whole different animal than the upwind sailing. You guys have got a lot of poles. Yeah, I got one pole. One is better than none. While you're in St. Martin, if you can pick up another pole, that would be good. 
because it's it's nice if you can pull out both the Genoas, uh, or if you have a full spinnaker. Maybe if you have a full spinnaker, that might be okay. Yeah, we have a we we just have we have a, gen, a Geniker is what we have. Yeah, the Geniker. No, the thing I realized on the last passage, right? So we went downwind most of the way from Ecuador to the Marquesas, is that you know you can you can use a preventer on the main, but the problem with the main and the pole on the main. You can even use the pole from the main, take drop the paint main and put the Jenniker through the, the bottom clue of the main to kind right. of pull out the Jenniker. But you you can't move that pole very far forward because you you get the spreaders are in the way essentially. Yeah. If you had two poles, you could probably have a more stable downwind setup as you're kind of Shifting in the waves, say shifting thirty or forty degrees in the waves. So right. if you if you're like dead downwind or twenty degrees off downwind, you're going to be jiving constantly. Right. And boy, the main really doesn't do well if it's backwinded. If you have a double head sail rig, or if you have one of those parasailers or a full full spinnaker, it just sails a lot better. Well, we may have to get us a rig like that. But you also you have a you have an inner force day, right? An inner force day. You got is it just a sloop rig or is it a cutter rig? Well, I wouldn't know the difference between a sloop and a cutter rig. Okay, you got a you got a Genoa, right? Yep. Uh, do you have a another sail between the Genoa and the mast? I don't have it, but there's a place for it. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah, you could, but even then, you you still want to have a pole. You know, one pole is essential if you can pull out, if your pole is long enough for the Genoa. That, that's another thing you want to think about with your pole. Is it long enough to pull out your Genoa? It is. It's huge. Uh, it, and that would be my two cents. I only have one, which I bent partially on the trip, which made it less efficient, but it still worked. Did you go down the coast of Ecuador and then and, and go to Peru and stuff like that and then cut across to uh, Galapagos or Marquesas? I went down to Ecuador, and then I hauled out the boat. So I only sail a couple months a year. And I was planning on keeping the boat in Ecuador for nine months, ten months, really. And I only got permission to stay there nine months. So I had to leave earlier than I wanted to. And so that's why I'm in the Marquesas now instead of in, like, May or June. So I wrote this book. It's called How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. So it talks about... It talks about the seasons and 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 what uh, what uh, that means for kind of long distance cruising. You know, right now you're in a good spot. You're gonna you got plenty of time to get to Panama. Uh, although, you know, I would say people tend to leave around April, so I guess you got still more time, but it's not a ton of time if you want to do it this year. Well, we're we're gonna have to do it this year. Just my older children's careers and stuff once they I mean they're going to be when we get done with this they'll be you know 17 18 years old and if I put it off a year then it pushes them into their college years yeah I think that's I, I think you've got a good attitude I mean I think everybody has different attitudes about cruising my thought is that we just kind of have limited time on this earth and if there's something you want to do like you literally want to sail around the world you have to actually do it, right? You can't. Right. You can't just. 
you know, sail from place to place, season to season, and think, you know, in 20 years you're going to do it because life's going to intervene. That's right. You get that weather window, you need to take it. Sounds like you guys are on a good path. So you went from Rum Key, and then where'd you go from Rum Key? From Rum Key, we went straight from there down to uh, Puerto Plata, Dominican Republic. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so how'd you like the Dominican Republic? Well, I, I liked it just fine. I liked it there, the, the waterfall. Boy, if you get a chance to go do those waterfalls, that's worth doing. Oh, so there, what what do you do at the waterfalls? Well, I'm not a tourist trap guy. I don't, I don't like tourist traps. And my wife says, we're going to go do this little tour of these waterfalls. It's, what's the name of it? Damajagua. Damajagua waterfalls. There's 27 waterfalls. And you got to wear a helmet. You got to wear a life jacket. And I'm sitting there the whole time thinking, I'm going to look like Sparky from National Lampoon's Vacation. <laughs> okay, so... What did, you, what did you actually do on the waterfalls? Did you bungee jump them, or what you do? Or you no, zip line them? The best way to do it is rent a car, okay. drive up there, and, and hire you the local guides that are right there, and they put you in the outfit, and they'll take you up, and you climb up half the side of this mountain, and then you you slide, swim, walk, jump down these waterfalls, and it's, it's this little through the limestone is the water's cut cut a path through there that's just unbelievable beautiful through there it's in one of our videos i don't remember what video it is but it's um it's just one of the neatest things and believe me you need the life jacket and you need the helmet because it's not if, if this was in america they would osha and insurance companies would never let you do it but i can promise you that yeah uh, yeah there's kind of it's all on your own responsibility you gotta think what's you know Safe or not. <laughs> yeah, and, and for me, it was perfect because yeah. I can't stand how safe America. I mean, you know, I can't stand that kind of an atmosphere. I like, oh, there's a little risk to this. We could get hurt. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, like, port hop in uh, the Dominican Republic? No, we, we were chasing weather windows through there, and we was you know, very apprehensive about the Mona Passage because you hear all these horror stories about the Mona Passage. And so... We stayed there just as long as till we got a good weather window, and we picked a good weather window, and it worked out right. We got right around there and went straight to Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. All right. And I think I saw the map, and it, it looked like you went under the south side of Puerto Rico, I guess. I think That's I remember right. the, the cruising guides when we did a charter there really were negative on the north side of Puerto Rico. Yeah, we never went to the north side. We went to the south side, and all we did is we checked in in Bocaron, on the north uh, or on the west southwest side of the island and then we we motor sailed all the way around to uh umacao palmas del mar marina there and i tell you what that of all the marinas i've been in and the places i've been the management and the, the people there at that palmas del mar yacht club marina in umacao they are the finest people i've ever met and I'm not just saying that because they didn't do anything for me. They're just super, super nice, customer service-oriented people. Yeah, you know, we really like Puerto Rico when we did the charter there. It's a nice place. I'd like to spend more time there. So do you guys restock up when you got to Puerto Rico or not really? No, we did. We, we stocked up good there because it's just like, you know, America there. And uh, went to San Juan, went through all the history there. was really neat, the, the, the big... Uh, Spanish castle type thing, you know, the, the armaments and all that stuff. And it was easy to provision there. So we provisioned up there. Then we made a the little hop over to the 
Virgin Islands, and when we got to the BVIs, we didn't we didn't stay in the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands because we're just trying to get windward, and uh, we stayed a little about a week, week and a half in the BVIs, and went to did a little diving there, dove, dove the Rhone wreck, and did uh, the bass, the big rock granite things, the bass up there on Virgin Gorda, and uh, then we went to Bitter End, and Bitter End is beautiful. I mean, it's very expensive, but it's it's probably it's a very beautiful place. It's right there by Richard Branson's place, uh, Necker Island, and just really beautiful place right there. Did you stop in the Spanish versions? Did you uh, stop no, in Culebra? Uh, no, no, we didn't. We just we hooked it straight from there to from Puerto Rico to St. Thomas. Okay. Did you spend much time in St. Thomas? No, we didn't. We we just overnighted, and then the next morning we picked up the hook and uh, kept going to the BVIs. <laughs> That was some of the music from the Hava Festival in Tahiti. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. I've not decided on the next guest, but I've got a lot of great interviews recorded, and I can't wait to bring it to you next month in August. You can check out all my books at Amazon.com or any of the country sites on Amazon. My books are How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, Slow Boat to the Bahamas, and Slow Boat to Cuba. If you want to connect with us, you can connect on YouTube.com slash Sailing, where we come out with monthly vlog episodes and other videos of interest to cruising sailors. You can also connect with Facebook dot com slash slow boat sailing or search for us at slow boat to the bahamas in the search box you can follow at slow boat sailing on twitter and this summer i have been more active on the twitter than on the facebook because it is easier for me to use because it uses less bandwidth here in the low bandwidth archipelago of French Polynesia. So thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform at iTunes, Google Play for Android, or Stitcher, or any other podcasting medium that you use. And we appreciate everyone who writes a rating or review for the podcast that lets other cruising sailors know about our great stories. There's no other sailing podcast about cruising around the world, and we try to bring you the most interesting guests in the world, too. Goodbye for now. My name is Linus Wilson. Don't forget to have some fun on the water. And for information on the crew drawing on Patreon.com, check out Patreon.com slash sailing. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.